Section five of Charles the Second by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter one. Prince of Wales. Part five. On August tenth, Lauderdale arrived at the Downs with instructions from the Committee of Estates issued after Hamilton had begun his march to induce the prince to come to Scotland. Charles was desired not to bring with him Rupert, Montrose, Digby, and a few others who were named, or his uncovenanted chaplains, and to promise that he would use the established Presbyterian service. About taking the covenant there was not a word. To secure the acceptance of these desires, Lauderdale held many private conferences with the prince, and separately with his counsellors. Charles pleaded for delay until he could obtain his father's opinion. But Lauderdale, strong in the knowledge of Hamilton's march, insisted upon an immediate decision. The prince now took his first lesson in the policy of acting along the line of least resistance. On the 16th, Lauderdale was called into the council, and there, to the utter consternation of Rupert, Hopton, and the other cavaliers, received Charles's submission. Lauderdale himself describes the scene, how he was placed next to Rupert, how Hopton, Gerard, and at first Culpepper were irreconcilable, how Percy and Wilmot were extremely right, Willoughby most honest and holy Scots. On one point only a compromise was effected. Charles made a personal request that the exclusion of Rupert and Morris should not be verbally insisted on and Lauderdale, who described how handsomely Prince Rupert carried himself, how willing he was to efface himself rather than embarrass Charles, met him in this. But Lauderdale knew very well that Charles's submission to the will of the Scots still hung in the balance. The Lord bless our army, he wrote, for all depends upon that under God. He might well say so. A few days later news came of the disaster at Preston. The engagers, from whom alone Charles could hope for tolerable terms, were ruined and helpless. If he now went to Scotland, he would go bound hand and foot to Argyll and the Kirk. Tidings that Colchester had fallen determined him to lead his fleet back to Holland, whither he advised Lauderdale, who dared not return to Scotland and who was very tired of wagging at sea, to betake himself and await his arrival. But the sailors, who were bent upon fighting, crowded the upper deck, and appealed to Charles to lead them against Warwick, cursing my lord Culpepper openly, and my lord Lauderdale, whom they threatened to throw overboard. Rightly or wrongly they were under the belief that the prince meant to go with a single vessel and his suite to Scotland, and they had become violently opposed to concessions to the Scots. Charles himself went among them, pointed out the want of provisions and water, the impossibility of doing anything effective against Warwick, their helplessness if contrary winds arose. But no rhetoric could alter this mad multitude from their design, for they fancied that upon the sight of our ships many of them would come into us which would destroy Warwick's fleet, and make us absolute masters at sea. Yet for all this we took another resolution for Holland, the prince, for no man else durst, 
set again upon the seamen to desire their leave and gave them so kind words that at length his ship was after a sort content to go for holland so we set sail which the other ship seeing two of the biggest sailed from us and away were going for lee road as fast as they could which we perceiving were forced to tack about and steer their course finding that there was nothing to be done till we had been in lee road so away we went as needs must when the devil drives on august twenty ninth they spied warwick's fleet coming toward us at which all our cabins were knocked down every ship cleared and put into a posture for fighting and every landman had his station and musket and so we sailed towards him desiring nothing more than to fight with him many years afterwards charles related how sir w batten being in the ship with him and prince rupert did walk up and down with a napkin under his throat to dry up his sweat and that prince rupert being a most jealous man and particularly if batten being a presbyterian do walk up and down swearing bloodily to the king that batten had a mind to betray them to-day and that the napkin was a signal but by god says he if things go ill the first thing i will do is to shoot him charles himself behaved with spirit when his lords and all his seamen came to desire him to go down into the hold he would not hear of it but told them his honour was more to him than his safety and desired them not to speak of it any more but the expected fight was prevented by a storm the sailors were at length persuaded that they must give way when they found but one butt of beer on the fleet and no water and on september third they were at anchor at gory thither warwick followed and summoned them to surrender but the states who were resolved that no fighting should take place in their waters ordered van tromp van butterbox the sailors called him to lie between the hostile fleets here we are i thank god writes the eye-witness whom we have quoted and if ever they get me into their sea voyages again i am much mistaken probably the only person who had really enjoyed himself was charles one other incident very personal to charles belongs to this time on april ninth sixteen forty nine the woman named lucy walters or barlow a beautiful brown insipid creature with not much wit little means and less grace gave birth at rotterdam to the future duke of monmouth charles at once acknowledged the boy proving that whether he were really his own son or as is more probable the son of robert sidney whose mistress she had been and whom the child greatly resembled the connection between himself and her must have begun during the week july ninth through sixteenth sixteen forty eight before he set out to sea it is interesting to be assured by grave historians that he was at this time eminent for continence the brothers now became permanent visitors of the prince of orange the states having limited their hospitality to ten days at the rate of one thousand guilders a day charles had ample occupation in the endeavour to appease the quarrels among his followers especially between rupert and culpepper representing the scotch and anti-scotch factions which went so far that culpepper was seriously beaten in the street by one of rupert's adherents he had also to make his fleet into a good fighting machine the ships were in dock 
and the guns on shore the crews were dispersed as far as rotterdam rioting and drinking some of the ships were carried back by their crews to the parliament others were retaken and Dorislaus, the agent of the parliament was justified in writing word that nothing serious was to be feared from the fleet in november charles whose vigorous constitution had enabled him to make a rapid recovery from a severe attack of smallpox created rupert admiral of the vessels that remained in the place of willoughby a concession to cavalier feeling probably to be laid to hyde's door two or three refused to have any commander but james but here they had to deal with rupert who restored discipline by the simple process of throwing ringleaders into the sea with his own strong arms morris was appointed vice-admiral and the ships were newly officered for a time this squadron the only semblance of royalist strength now in a condition to make itself felt did useful work by capturing prizes which were sold though for ridiculously low sums to replenish charles's almost empty exchequer it was intended however that as soon as possible rupert should sail to cooperate with ormond in ireland ever since he had landed at gorey charles had had by his side the wise and consistent counsellor to whom he afterwards owed his throne we have seen that hyde had been summoned in haste by the queen from jersey but had reached st germain only to find that the prince had already left he set off straightway in pursuit with lord coddington an old adviser of charles i of like mind with himself missing their master at calais they sailed to dunkirk and there heard that he was already at sea they strove to reach him in a small vessel but were taken by pirates and robbed of all they had finally reaching the hague destitute and nearly dead with seasickness a day only before charles returned three weeks later hyde addressed to the queen though it was never actually sent a remarkable letter wherein he expressed again with unmistakable distinctness the opinions from which he never swerved throughout all the weary years to follow never he said would he consent still less contribute to anything that might carry hazard to the full and perfect rights of the church of england should either she or the king be inclined under any notions of expedience to injure the church and thereby the crown he would endeavour all means lawful and possible to prevent it he had heard that with her approbation the prince had at lauderdale's demand put himself into the power and disposition of the scots which i did not expect the danger was for the moment past through hamilton's defeat but she must understand clearly that under no circumstances would he lend himself to such a course nor would he attend the prince if he should ever decide to go to scotland if after this clear exposition his counsel was still desired he trusted he might be disposed of to some other part of her service when he would with all imaginable obedience observe her commands in these views although they are nowhere expressed so uncompromisingly ormond and nicholas concurred while colepepper percy long the prince's secretary and dr fraser his physician were the chief saints in the presbyterian calendar for the time the scottish plan was as dead as hyde could wish 
it was not until december that charles had received the letters written to him after hamilton's rout by the committee of estates in scotland and the assembly of the kirk who were now in harmony the committee out of the duty they owed to him as our native prince urged him at once to repudiate the engagers and to induce his father to agree to the hampton court terms especially as regarded the covenant and the reformation of religion the letter from the commissioners of the assembly said the same but with greater emphasis which was customary with the kirk they exhorted the prince to be diligent in reading the holy scriptures and frequent in prayer for grace and understanding and trusted that god would not give him over to the counsel of the ungodly all this and much more led up to the real point we are persuaded there is not a better means for securing the king's throne than that your royal father and your highness should join in this league and covenant the replies drafted by hyde were of a nature to discourage further correspondence for a time the prince was made to rejoice over the wishes expressed in these letters to secure the removal of all differences betwixt the king and his subjects he threw the onus of obtaining this desirable object entirely upon the writers congratulated them upon their dutiful and pious attitude and said not a word about the covenant it was quite certain that as long as hyde's advice were listened to a journey to scotland would not find favour but ireland remained and hyde was urgent that charles should go thither at the first opportunity it was therefore arranged that the prince should winter in jersey whence he might easily sail upon receipt of good news from ormond his mother was fain to accompany him to ireland but the fronde was now in full swing the french court was compelled to leave paris money was not to be had and she herself during a winter of extreme severity was in such distress that she had not a sou to get a dinner or a gown and would have been without even a fire but for the kind-heartedness of de retz at length the parliament of paris gave her a supply for her immediate necessities and james was sent to her from holland in the middle of february after he had dismissed the greater number of his servants among them peter massenet the sublector who had taught both his brother and himself to write charles also reduced his household and took up his residence at breda the private patrimony of the prince of orange on the frontier of the low countries where he was maintained in comfort by his brother-in-law it was now that he received from his father three long letters giving a detailed account of the proceedings of the isle of wight treaty they were the last letters to him from the king and the second of them concludes with a passage which written at such a time must be infinitely touching even to those who most feel the weakness of the king's character by what has been said you see how long we have laboured in the search of peace do not you be disheartened to tread in the same steps use all worthy ways to restore yourself to your right but prefer the way of peace and in this give belief to our experience never to affect more greatness or prerogative than that which is really and intrinsically for the good of subjects not satisfaction of favourites and if you thus use it you will never want means to be a father to all and a bountiful prince to any 
you would extraordinarily be gracious unto you may perceive all men entrust their treasure where it returns them interest and if princes like the sea receive and repay all the fresh streams the rivers entrust with them they will not grudge but pride themselves to make them up an ocean these considerations may make you as great a prince as your father is now a low one and your state may be so much the more established as mine hath been shaken for subjects have learned that victories over their prince are but triumphs over themselves and so will be more unwilling to hearken to changes hereafter the english nation are a sober people however at present infatuated we know not but this may be the last time we may speak to you or the world publicly we are sensible into what hands we are fallen and yet we have these inward refreshments the malice of our enemies cannot perturb to conclude if god gives you success use it humbly and far from revenge if he restore you to your rights on hard conditions whatever you promise keep do not think anything in this world worth the obtaining by foul or unjust means you are the son of our love and as we direct you to weigh what we have recommended to you so we assure you we do not more affectionately pray for you than we do that the ancient glory and renown of this nation be not buried in irreligious or fanatic humour and that the ancient laws with the interpretation according to the known practice may once again be a hedge about our subjects that you may in due time govern and they be governed as in the fear of god on january thirteenth sixteen forty nine within a month of reading these words charles was apprised of his father's danger on the next day he made a personal appeal to the states even now he was unable to address them in french by the same vessel that carried their mission of remonstrance he forwarded to the council in england that eloquent blank sheet of paper which may still be seen in the bodleian library bearing nothing but his signature in order that upon it might be written the conditions of his father's life on the eighteenth he appealed to the young king of france and to mazarin on february fifth he knew that the blow had fallen when dr goff his chaplain addressed him as your majesty End of section five.